Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. Good morning, Cape Cod Church. Oh my gosh, you are awake today. I love that. Oh, it is Christmas at Cape Cod Church. It is so good. That drummer board piece blew me away. It's been a couple of fun weeks here. And if this is your very first time with us, we are so glad that you're here. And especially today, I mean, brass band, drummer boy. There's a lot going on at Cape Cod Church because we think that there's a lot worth celebrating this time of year. And in particular, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And everywhere you look, it's not just here, everywhere you look, you will see hints and pieces of this story. And even if you did not grow up in a Christian home, my guess is you probably know this story pretty well. The shepherds, the magi, the angels, a baby in a manger. I mean, it's in our nativity sets, it's in our carols, even our Christmas cookie cutters are in the shapes of the star of Bethlehem. It is everywhere this time of year. But there is a problem with the Christmas story. There's a challenge with the Christmas story, and here's the challenge. The Christmas story is just a little bit hard to believe. And I don't mean like, oh, it's too good to be true. We talked about that last week. But let's just be honest. There are pieces of the Christmas story that are just sometimes feel a little bit too weird to be true. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's just be honest. There are angels who appear in the sky, There are angels who appear in dreams. There are magical stars that move across the sky. And of course, famously, there is a virgin birth. Now, even as the New Testament goes, that's a little bit wild. And even if you're here today and you are a believer, it can still feel just a little bit awkward when your friend finds out. And they're like, wait a second, you actually believe that? Yes, yes. Or maybe you're here today and you're the friend and you're sitting next to somebody invited you here today or you're watching online because they sent you this message. And you're like, wait a second, you actually believe that? Looking around the room like, what is this group of people? How deluded are they? But before you run to the bathroom or pretend to run to the bathroom and never come back, (laughs) I, (laughs) let me just say this. I think that the Christmas story is worth taking a look at. Because when we look at the Christmas story, there's more than meets the eye. In fact, the Christmas story was actually written for skeptics. And so if you're here this morning, there's a whole spectrum of skepticism, but if you're here and there's even a little bit of doubt or a little bit of discomfort or a whole lot of doubt about the Christmas story, believe it or not, it was written for you. The events that we call the Christmas story, the events of the origin of Jesus Christ, were not written by fans for fans. They were actually written for people who were on the fence about who Jesus was. So I think it's worth investigating. And let me show you what I mean. And I'm going to need a little bit of help this morning. So I've got a diagram that's going to be on the panels behind me to help uh, display what I'm talking about this morning. So... Um, I just want a quick disclaimer. I did not create this. Uh, a pastor named Andy Stanley in Atlanta, Georgia, created, assembled this. However, he did his on a chalkboard. I'm not very good at chalk or drawing, so I had our graphic design team create this, and they are amazing. So much thanks to them. But this is essentially, this is essentially the story of Christianity. 
uh, it began with an event. We talk about this a lot at Cape Cod Church. It began with an event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And whether or not you believe that a man was raised from the dead, something happened there, and many people believed that a man was raised from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus. And then immediately after that event, it gave rise to a movement. It immediately gave rise to a movement of people who believed that this event had happened, and they started to gather. It was called The Way. It was called a Nazarene sect for a period of time, and eventually it started to become the ecclesia, or the gathering of people who believed in Jesus Christ, which we now call the church. And immediately after that event happened, and as this movement was happening, people within that movement, within that same generation of people, within the first century, began to document the events that had happened, both the resurrection of Jesus, his life before, and the events of that movement that they were participating in. So within one century, you had people who were actually there for these events. People like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Luke who also wrote Acts and others, but these are the ones that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. People who lived during that time, who experienced those events, began to document the events of that time period. And they based it on their own personal experiences, but they would also go and they would interview people in that time period who had been there. They went and talked with Jesus' family. There's something to suggest that they probably talked with his mom, Mary. And they would go to the towns where these events had happened and they would interview people in those towns who were known as local event keepers or record keepers. And they would gather those all together in these documented things that we know as the Gospels. And then, in the fourth century, just 300 years later, people would come together within the leaders of that movement, and they would assemble those eyewitness testimonies in what we now know as the Bible. 300 years later, after those events had happened, they decided this is so important and so valuable, we cannot risk any of these records getting lost. So they gathered together thousands of manuscripts, literally thousands of manuscripts, and compared and made sure that everything within each was correct, that they were the verifiable documents from these eyewitnesses, these, these researchers who had gone out and recorded these events, because they believed it was so valuable that it had to be recorded and safeguarded and shared and disseminated for other people. And if you're wondering, okay, so how does this, what does this have to do with Christmas? How does this relate to Christmas? Now, if you're putting together a record of events about a very important person in history or someone you view as significant, it comes with other questions. People start to ask, well, okay, wait, where did this person come from? You're claiming somebody was raised from the dead, was dead and then walked again. Okay, who was this guy? Like, really, who were his parents? I mean, you want to know, if we, even if we hear, like, small news, like, oh, someone from Cape Cod was on American Idol, you want to know, oh, where did they come from? Who was their music teacher? And so people are asking, who was this guy? What town was he from? Where was he born? Who were his parents? How did this happen? And so along the way, these people who were documenting these events also began to research the origin story of Jesus Christ. They would go back to his hometown. They would ask locals and family members and friends. They would check records in those towns so that they could establish the origin story of this person that they believed was so significant that they wanted to record his life. And this is so significant for us 
Because these people did not know that they were writing the Christmas story. They didn't even know that there would be a Christmas that we celebrate annually, that there would be shopping sprees and brass bands and elf jokes someday because of these events. They didn't know that they were writing the Christmas story. All they knew is that they wanted to record the life of this man and they wanted to record his origin story. And that origin story is what we now know as the Christmas story. It's like if you're putting together a documentary of somebody's life, you go and you look back. Has anybody here seen the Michael Jordan documentary? It's pretty fabulous. If you're looking at the history of Michael Jordan, you want to know, where was the first basketball court that he played on? <laughs> Who did he play with? Who was his coach? How did he get here? And that's what these people were doing. And they had no idea that hundreds, thousands of years later, we would be celebrating it annually with musical celebrations and candy and cookies. They just knew. This is so important. I want to get it down on paper. So, part of the gospel accounts is this origin story. In fact, if you look at the beginning of Matthew in chapter 1, verse 1, this is how he starts. The book of origin of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. The book of origin. Let me tell you the origin of this man who changed our lives, started a movement, and eventually would change the world. Now, I want to be careful about how I word this next part because there may be some younger family members in the room. But let me just say it like this. Things have changed since I was a kid in terms of Santa Claus. Santa Claus has gotten a little bit more high-tech than he was when I was a kid. I uh, hear nowadays he gives away, like, he creates iPads and AirPods. The elves have gone through some serious career training. I mean, imagine you're like making toys for hundreds of years out of wood, and then there's the plastic age, and that's kind of tough. Imagine that now you have to get into coding. So he's gotten really high tech, and our ways of tracking Santa have gotten more high tech. They've been tracking Santa via satellite for, I think, over like 50 years. So that existed when I was little, even though I think most of the time we would just be like driving on our way to grandma's and we would see Rudolph's blinking nose going through the sky, if you know what I mean. We're like, oh my gosh, Santa's there, I see him. But you can track Santa on satellite, and now, this has changed since I was a kid, now there are even apps dedicated to this. They're on Instagram and YouTube. I don't know if you knew that. You can go online, and you can actually talk. You can have a chat with a radar specialist who tracks Santa. Like, look it up. Go on the website. You can chat with them right now if you wanted. Please don't do that right now, but later, look it up. It's wild. But despite all of the technological advances around Santa Claus, belief is still a really important important part of the Santa Claus tradition. Because we all know, if you don't believe in Santa Claus, that is the first strike to get you on the naughty list. And we also know, if you don't believe in Santa Claus, and that if you see Santa Claus, that's not allowed either. I knew growing up, I'm like, I have to be in bed early. That's what I've been told. I have to be in bed early, and Santa Claus will not come. He will not bring my gifts until I am asleep. Those are the rules. If you don't believe in Santa Claus, you're on the naughty list, and you're not allowed to see Santa Claus. You can see the blinking light in the sky. You can track him on your app. That's fine. You can look at the cookies that have been eaten in the morning and the glass of milk that is empty. That's all fine. But nobody's inviting you to investigate the evidence of Santa Claus, if you know what I mean. 
I, growing up, knew that Santa Claus wrote in all caps. That was just how it worked in our house. I'm sure he switches up house to house. He must get bored as he travels around the world. Some of you, you're, you know, Santa Claus did cursive for you. In my house, Santa wrote in all caps. Nobody ever asked me to compare the handwriting of Santa Claus and other people in my family. That's just against the spirit of Christmas. Because there's a piece of Santa Claus where the blind belief is an important part of the tradition. You need to believe, but you are not invited to investigate. Belief is part of the magic of Santa Claus. And some of us have grown up thinking, or maybe think now, that when it comes to Christianity, and when it comes to the Christmas story, it's the same deal. You are invited to believe. Actually, you are required to believe, but don't look too close. Just believe, just have a little bit of faith. But here's the problem. The Christmas story was not written as folklore. It wasn't a legend like Saint Nick that developed over hundreds of years. It was written within one generation of the people who experienced those events. And they did not write it so that you had to believe in it. Quite the opposite, they wrote it so that you could believe. They wrote, they documented the events of the Christmas story so that you could have real evidence, so that you could investigate the evidence of Jesus' life, so that you could believe. They're not asking you, hey, just have faith, just have blind belief, don't look too close. They're actually inviting you, come. See what we have seen. Look at the evidence for yourself because we think it's compelling and we think that if you saw the evidence that we have seen, you too would believe. And this is so important because it means for you and for me that if there's a little bit of doubt or skepticism, we can look at the evidence and we can decide that it's not compelling. You are invited to do that. You can look at it all and you can decide, you know what, I just don't think it's that compelling. But what we cannot do, what we cannot do is pass it off or put it to the side as a sweet, magical bit of folklore. Because that is not what the document claims to be. The document claims, the authors claimed, that these were real events in history, that there's reliable evidence that they happened. And we want to give you an account so that you can decide for yourself whether it's worth believing in. They were the last people on the planet to say, hey, just have faith, just believe, and don't look too close. In fact, honestly, if you're here today and that's your story, like you've had people in your life tell you, hey, just, you just gotta believe. Don't ask questions, just believe. Honestly, I don't think it's your fault. I think oftentimes the church has gotten this wrong, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that's been the case, because the people who experienced these events were the last people on the planet to say, hey, just believe and don't look too close. Quite the opposite. They were saying, listen, I know it's hard to believe, but here's the deal. The God of the universe who was unseen has made himself seen. We have seen it with our own eyes. Look closely, and we think that there's something worth believing in. That is the purpose of the origin story of Jesus. It's the reason we even have the Christmas story, because some people wrote these events 
for the express purpose of inviting you and I, wherever you are on the skeptical spectrum, to investigate and to take a close look and to decide for ourselves. So, today I want to investigate. I want to investigate and I want to start with, we'll start and we'll only have time today for one, with one gospel writer who writes an origin story. There are actually two gospel writers who bring us the events that we know as Christmas. One of them is Matthew and the other is Luke. And they spoke to different audiences and different groups of uh, skeptics, but here's what you need to know about Matthew. Matthew was writing to a group of uh, Jewish individuals. He's primarily writing to the Jewish community that he lived in and he served in. And he was writing to skeptics within the Jewish community who found it kind of hard to believe that Jesus was indeed who people said he was. Because Matthew didn't just believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. He believed that this was a sign that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jewish community had been waiting for, that Jesus was this long-awaiting, awaited king. They had had glory days of kingship in the past, and then they had been conquered and in exile, and been conquered since. And in the time that Matthew lived, they were under Roman rule, but Matthew believed that Jesus was the long-awaited king that they had been hoping and praying for, that people had prophesied. But the people in Matthew's community were skeptical about this for a variety of reasons. And so Matthew sets out to write a convincing report for them about the life of Jesus. And here's how he starts. The book of origin of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we've seen this already. We know we're about to get the origin story of Jesus, but then he does something interesting. He begins with a long genealogy of Jesus. Now you can read, I'm not going to make you read the whole thing today. You can read the whole thing in your Bible app if you like, but instead I've just included some key names on the screen for you. And he writes this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, who was the father of Hezron, who was the father of Ram, who was the father of Amminadab. It was the father of Nashon, Salmon, of Boaz by Rahab, Obed by Ruth, and Jesse, who was the father of King David. So now we've moved through Israel's history, through the days of tribalism, where they had judges to rule them, up into the glory days. King David. Everybody knew about King David and all of these names. They were clear in their mind and collective history. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And then he continues. And these are the glory days of Israel. And we read a bunch of names that mean little to us, but would have meant a lot to them. Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So we've gotten all the way up to their exile. And we're getting closer to recent history. And then comes the big finale. After the exile, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Eliud, Eleazar. We're getting really close. Methan and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All right, that's a lot of names. Um, a couple things to note here. First, we actually talked about this genealogy in the loft with the students a couple weeks ago, and we agreed. Um, there's a couple names in here that are just not okay to name your children. Like, if you're looking for a biblical name, 
Uh, Jehoshaphat is not it. Also, uh, Salmon is a real biblical name. I don't know if you knew that. Probably also not the best choice for your new baby. David, fine. Jehoshaphat, not so much. Second, I mean, we just have to ask, like, Matthew, what are you doing? Matthew wants to write a convincing report to skeptics, and he starts with this long genealogy. And I'm just going to say, like, if I, it, it takes me about a minute, not even, a couple seconds, three seconds, when I'm reading a social media post to decide if I want to continue reading that social media post. Never mind a long documentary of the life of someone, and if it starts with Jesus' 23 in me, I don't know if I'm going to keep reading. And that's how Matthew starts. And we give Matthew the benefit of the doubt, like, well, maybe, maybe that's just how you started, like, one of these things back in the day. But actually, it doesn't seem to be the case. There were some things, that, some traditional ways of starting a convincing essay like this. And actually, we know that Luke uses that method. The way that Luke writes, he starts off with that method. But Matthew does not, and he is the only one who starts with a genealogy. So what is this all about? Why would you do this if you're trying to convince people that Jesus was who he said he was? In order to figure out what he's up to, we have to know his audience. Matthew believed that Jesus was risen from the dead, and he had skeptics. And the reason that the Jews were skeptical was because Jesus did not look like what they thought their future king would look like. For one thing, everybody knew that Jesus was from Nazareth. He continually called Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. Now, Galilee was in the northern region of Israel, and there were two regions of Israel. One of them was separated from the main city of Jerusalem. So you have the main city, it's like the hub of Jewish culture, very monocultural, very sophisticated, and it was also the height in this place where people would go and worship. But the region of Galilee was separated from that by the region of Samaria. So there was a secular pagan area that separated the two. And because of that, Galilee was much more of a mixed population. There were some Jewish cities there, but they were also next door to pagan cities. And because of that, it was just more of a mixing pot and a culture. And because they were separated, it was hard for them to travel to Jerusalem to worship as routinely as those who lived in the other region. And on top of that, because of the separation, they had actually developed like their own accent, which the people in the Jerusalem region viewed as like kind of like a country bumpkin accent. Like that's the best. We actually have historical evidence that shows that they made fun of people from that region who talked like that. The best example I can give, and no offense if you're here today, but if you are from the south, the deep, deep south, and you visit Cape Cod and you talk with somebody, they're gonna know, oh, you're not from around here. So if you traveled from Jesus' region and you went down to Jerusalem, they would immediately know, oh, you're not from around here. And worse than that, they 100% just looked down on people from that region. They were viewed as country bumpkins, the lesser cousins, not as sophisticated. They didn't worship properly in their view, and they would know immediately, oh, they're not one of us. And Jesus was from that region, and everyone knew it. And on top of that, there was another problem. Everyone knew that the new king of the Jews, this king that had prophesied and claimed, everyone knew that he was meant to be from this Jerusalem region, from the area where King David had reigned and been born and been anointed. They all believed he was supposed to come from this southern region. And everyone knew, well, Jesus was from Nazareth, so he can't possibly be the king. 
So when people go around claiming, hey, this guy, Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee, he was raised from the dead, and we think he's the Messiah, there would have been a whole lot of people within the Jewish community who would have said, Jesus of Nazareth? There is absolutely no way. No way. It can't be. It would be, the best comparison I can give is, have you ever had somebody from your high school who just slacked their way through high school, like never did a single assignment, barely showed up, barely graduated on time, and then one day somebody tells you, hey, did you know that so-and-so is like the CEO of a tech company, is like making six figures now, and is married to a supermodel? You would be like, uh, there's no way. And then now you can just jump on Instagram and be like, oh my gosh, it's true, how did that happen? I should have slacked my way through high school and started a startup company. That is kind of what it was like for these people. They're like, I'm sorry, what, this guy? They're reading these reports, words gotten out, and like, this guy? This guy's gonna be the long-awaited Messiah, the king of the Jews? There's no way. And Matthew steps into that space and he says, no, 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 no. Listen, I know why you think that, but you've got it wrong, because you don't know the full story. Let me tell you the origin story of Jesus Christ. Because when you know the full story, when you've seen the documentary, when you've heard the reports, it will all make a whole lot more sense. And so he starts with this genealogy, and he gives us hints about what he's trying to do with his audience. First thing you need to know about this genealogy, Jewish people took genealogies very, very seriously. In fact, uh, they would have been carefully recorded and on record publicly so that anyone could go and fact check you. So you can't put something like this out unless it's 100% verifiably true. So when Matthew puts this out, there would have been people and be like, what? I, are you serious? I'm gonna go check on that. And the other thing I want you to notice is that the people that Jesus is related to, First, he starts with Abraham, which was typical. Abraham was the forefather of the Jews, so, okay, he's Jewish. They already knew that. But then it traces down to Judah. Now, Judah was the royal, the true royal bloodline of the Jews, and everyone knew it. He was the, the bloodline that the true kings of Israel had all descended from during those glory days of Israel. And you remember how the people in Jerusalem were kind of like looking down on the people in the north, looking down on the region of Galilee? Yeah, these people listed, the line of Judah, those were their people. Those are like the people. Those are the royals. Not only King David, but all of those names that come after. Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, they're all kings. Every single one of them, down to Josiah before they get exiled, were all famous kings of Israel. And so Matthew goes, yeah, you're looking down on this guy? Guess who he is? He's related to all of your favorite characters. And he's descended from the royal line of King David, who, from who it was prophesied that the true king of the Jews would be descended from. And you can almost see Matthew just like smiling, like, oh, <laughs> you thought, but guess what? He's one of you. You thought he was just some country bumpkin, but he's one of you. And it doesn't end there. Matthew also points out some weird people. I don't know if you notice this in the genealogy, but he points out four unlikely women. It starts with Tamar. 
And Tamar was famous, unfortunately, for seducing her dad. Not a good look. Rahab was a... <laughs> understatement. Rahab was a prostitute who helped the Israelites escape Jericho, but that's her famous backstory. The wife of Uriah is actually somebody named Bathsheba, who many of us may recognize as the one who King David committed adultery with. And then he mentions Ruth. And Ruth was not even Jewish. In fact, none of these women were Jewish. None of these women were Jewish, and they all have kind of sordid, immoral pasts. And they were all famously part of the story of Israel and their kingship lineage. And it's like Matthew is reminding his listeners, hey, I don't know if you remember these names. You probably do. They're quite famous. But just as a reminder, God often likes to use unlikely people. God often uses the unlikely and the overlooked in his ways. So not only is Jesus one of you and you didn't know, he's also a little bit unlikely, and actually that's fitting for the way our God works. And then to drive it all home, Matthew ends with one big reveal. Just a few verses later, he writes this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. And guess where Bethlehem was located? That's right in the southern kingdom, where King David was born and anointed, where it was prophesied that the true king would one day come out of. Matthew's like, listen, you knew that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, but what you did not know is that he was born in Bethlehem. He is related to your kings. He checks every single box. All the stars have aligned. And not only does he fit every single box. This guy's the real deal. And he goes on to tell the story in the rest of the gospel about how this man lived his life, the things that he preached, the things that he claimed about himself, and then how many, many people saw and believed that he had, in fact, risen from the dead. He's like, I know you're skeptical, but you didn't know the full story. This is the origin of Jesus Christ. This is the man that we have been waiting for. And in fact, because of the events that happened, we believe that he was not just a man at all, that this one was the king and Messiah we've been waiting for, that this man was in fact God himself, who was unseen, who has now made himself seen, allowed us to see him so that we could believe and we could be saved. And many people were so persuaded by Matthew's account that they came to faith. They joined a growing movement of people who told the story over and over and over again, who protected that story for generations, who told so many people that 2,000 years later, around the world, we celebrate these events that we call the Christmas story that back then they just called the backstory of Jesus. And the fact that we know the events of Christmas at all are because these people believed that they were so significant that they needed to be preserved and passed down. So, 
you and I are invited to investigate. And if that's true, if the Christmas story was written for you and I, if it was written to convince skeptics, then we just have to ask one question. Is Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John a compelling, accurate account of real events in history? Do I find even one of these stories compelling? Because if I do, that changes everything. If I do, then there is something substantial to place my faith in. Because these are not just Bible stories. The Bible was written because of the life of Jesus, to preserve and protect and to tell the story of events that really happened in history. And if you and I look at the evidence in any one of these and we come away thinking that it could be an actual account of real events, then we have something solid to place our faith in. And if that's true, it changes everything. We've been talking about Christmas presents quite a lot. And if it is true that Jesus really did raise from the dead, and that's not just some quaint, sweet idea that gives us a little bit of comfort during the holidays. If it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, then his presence is very real in our lives because it means that his spirit still lives and you and I get to experience a relationship with him even today. So if you're here and you decide, you know what, I actually, I, I don't wanna follow Jesus because it costs too much. That is okay. You can look and you can decide, I actually don't wanna follow Jesus because it, it's just gonna cost me too much. That makes sense because it will cost you quite a lot. Following Jesus will require you to change the way you behave. It will require you to love your enemies. It will require you to change the way you spend your money and your time and your attention. It will require you to be kind with people who annoy you and be patient with people that you do not like. It will demand so much of you. It will ask you to lay down your life the same way Jesus of Nazareth laid down his life for others. But please, please, do not decide not to follow Jesus because you think there is nothing to this story. Because I believe that there is. This story has been passed down for generations and there are millions of people in the last 2,000 years who have come away, changed, because of the events that happened and the evidence that they received. So, you are invited to investigate, and I hope that you will. Whether there's just a little bit of doubt or you're fully not on board with Jesus, you're watching because somebody sent you this link, whatever your story, you are invited to investigate. The church should never ask you just to have blind faith because that's not what the disciples are communicating. The whole story of Christmas is that the God who was unseen made himself very real. He showed up in a manger right in front of people's eyes. He lived a life on this earth so that we could experience his presence then and forever. So if you're here today and you are on the edge, you are on the edge or the threshold of making that decision, that step of faith, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that this morning. So will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for Christmas. 
for the gift of your son that 2,000 years ago you decided we were so valuable that you wanted to come and to be with us and to make yourself known. And Father, if there's anyone in this room who's skeptical about the Christmas story, about who you are, about who Jesus was, we just ask that if you are there, that you would honor the little bit of faith we have to reach out and that you would make yourself known to us. And Father, if there's anyone in this room today who sees you and wants to take that step of faith, to place their faith in you, to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that these accounts are true records of actual events. If that's you in this room, you can reach out to God yourself, you can speak to him however you like, but perhaps you say something like this. God, I don't know everything about you, and I have a lot of doubts, but today I do believe that you came to earth as a person in Jesus Christ. And that knowing me and knowing all of my faults, in spite of that, that you came to save and to rescue me, that your son, Jesus, died on the cross so that I could have a full life with you. And today, Father, in that place of faith, I just want to say that my faith is in you. I want to accept that gift and enter in a beautiful journey. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for that little bit of faith and help us even in our unbelief. In Jesus' name.